immediately. They left immediately, no hesitation, no questions asked, no looking back. Immediately, all four who were called followed. Jesus was like a magnet. His gravitational pull yanked them right out of those fishing boats. They didn't first say, let me sell the fish. They didn't first go and tie down the boat. Their nets sunk right there into the Sea of Galilee immediately. They followed. Why? What enabled those four fishermen to jump ship and take a new direction in their lives? Do you suppose they were just sick of a career in fishing? After years of rising before dawn to mend their nets, repair their boats, fold their sails, and endure the less than glamorous life of back-breaking, smelly work, catching fish to put on other people's tables, Maybe they were just done with fishing and ready for a new career. One scholar suggests that they may have been politically motivated. Though fishing could be lucrative work, the Roman governor, Herod Antipas, was taking advantage of the fishermen. Herod claimed that the waters belonged to him, so he exploited the fishermen by forcing them to not only get a fishing license, but also to get a lease then he demanded that they produce certain quotas, pay tolls, and ridiculous fees and taxes so that some days out on the boat, it felt like they were just enslaved to Herod, to Herod's political regime. It's possible that they are just fed up with fishing for Herod's gain and would rather fish for Jesus. Maybe they were exhausted from Herod's domination and eager to pursue these gentle, kind, and tender ways of a man named Jesus who was always uplifting the downtrodden and the poor. In the whole story, the four fishermen never speak, so we're not sure why they immediately followed Jesus. We do know that there are stories later in the scriptures of these and other disciples out on the boats fishing on various fishing trips. So I suppose that one way to see their immediate change of heart is that they didn't really give up being fishermen that day. They just changed the purpose of their fishing. No longer were they simply trying to earn a living. They were trying now to participate in a life of joy and service, the kind of life they glimpsed in the person of Jesus. Maybe now they spent some of their time not just fishing, but trying to improve the fishing industry, mentoring new young fishermen, and giving some of that fish away to those who had not enough bread nor fish on the table. Immediately, something shifted, and they began to follow God. All we know is that it was something profoundly compelling. It reminds me a little bit about how many of us felt that year that the Royals finally made it to the World Series. Even fair-weather baseball fans like me became obsessed with the Royals. There was kind of this electric energy throughout our city, and here at church, we even got some of that blue cellophane to put on all the lights around the church so that the church was illuminated blue at night. 
and my family began organizing our evenings around opening pitch, and we did what we never do, which is to watch TV while eating dinner. People spent stupid amounts of money for those game tickets, some of them in my own family, even boarding airplanes to fly here for the games. And I remember the night of the final game, sitting in the driveway with some friends here from the church where some of them had set up lawn chairs in this huge screen on the driveway so that everyone could watch. And during each play and cheer, we could hear the roaring from all the other households on the cul-de-sac. And then came the victory parade. And schools throughout the metro canceled class and my friend and I decided to go to the parade on the bus. But after we waited at the bus stop very early in the morning and watched about six different buses pass us so full of passengers that they didn't even stop at the bus stop, we decided to drive. But once we decided to drive, we realized that the whole road was a parking lot. So we got out and walked from the plaza to Crown Center along with 800,000 of our closest friends in Kansas City. And never once did we think, maybe we should turn back. We were just compelled. It was a joy. We didn't want to miss it. It seems like those four fishermen, Simon and Andrew and James and John, experienced that same kind of joyful urgency they didn't hear Jesus making some kind of theological proposition for them to ponder. Instead, they heard about a joy they couldn't imagine missing. They didn't ask Jesus why they should follow or where he was leading. They sensed deep in their souls a movement that was taking place in their midst that they wanted to belong to. But sometimes, you and I assume that in the real world, not in the Bible times, but I mean in the real world, we can't follow Jesus. We're not rich enough. We're not religious enough. We're not courageous enough or faithful enough. We're busy. We have families to feed and payrolls to meet and trips to take and laundry to wash and following God sometimes feels like, like, like one more thing to do, a demand. I wonder how those four fishermen heard it. Simon and Andrew, they must have wondered why Jesus wanted them. Both of them were poor. They couldn't even afford their own boat. They fished from the dock or the shore, casting their nets. What did Jesus need from them? Simon, of course, came from a long line of other Jewish men named Simon. So maybe Jesus recognizes his religious heritage and sees potential there for reaching into the hearts of the Jewish community. But Andrew, that's a Greek name, never found in the tribe of Israel. When Jesus calls Simon and Andrew, it's like he's just pulled up to a construction site here in Kansas City and said, hey, William, hey, Muhammad, come, follow me. An insider and an outsider. I wonder what they thought about this Jesus who would want both of them to come and follow 
after him. And then Jesus calls James and John, who were the wealthier fishermen, they have a boat. They even have assistants helping them. It's a family business. Their dad, Zebedee, is there along with his two sons. You might think of their fishing operation as the cerner of the fishing industry in Galilee. It's a going concern. I wonder how they heard this summons to leave the nets. Why wouldn't Jesus call on, like, some theologians or some social workers or maybe a priest? Why these business people? Why these ordinary folk living in the real world? Why would they go? And they do not hesitate. They offer no excuse. They go full tilt, but why? Were these four just the most virtuous or open-minded guys around? In his book, Doing Virtuous Business, Dr. Malik tells the story of Sir John Templeton. When John began his studies at Yale, he dreamed of becoming a minister. But while a student, he realized that his gift was more in the area of finance, particularly financial analysis. And so he shifted gears, and upon completion from school, he set up a one-room office above the local police station where he began advising clients about where to invest their money. Templeton created the first global network of mutual funds, and his business grew into a multi-billion dollar corporation. His Christian faith led him to think that investments should be global, extending the opportunity to people throughout the globe who had previously been marginalized by the capitalist progress. And so he looked to places that folks were not at that time thinking of as a good investment. Asia, the Middle East, Australia, and remote parts of Africa. He invited his clients to invest in these new emerging businesses. For Templeton said that he believed that every person was the tiniest part of God. He said, we should try to love every human being without any exceptions, and not just a little bit, but unlimited love for every human being with absolutely no exceptions. Templeton followed God in the real world. He couldn't imagine doing anything else, but why? Why do we sometimes turn a deaf ear in God's direction, and at other times we are overcome with an unquestioned capacity to throw our whole lives into following Jesus? I think of my sister Dorothy, my sister-in-law Dorothy, who is married to a man named Art. Art is a minister who felt called to go into missionary work. Dorothy and Art began their married life by heading off to Cameroon, where they worked for a decade and all three of their children were born there. Eventually, they came back to Chicago where their children went to high school and college. But then, once the children were raised, Art felt the call to go back to Africa, this time to work on trying to curtail the spread of AIDS and to take good care of those children who had been orphaned by the AIDS epidemic. He and Dorothy spent another decade there, and they faced some of the most horrific 
circumstances you could imagine. But about four years ago, Dorothy's mom had died, leaving Dorothy's dad at age 89, living alone in his home in Michigan. Dorothy and Art immediately left Africa and moved in with my father-in-law, Jacob. Dorothy has now been taking care of Jacob for almost five years. She has cared for him through a fractured hip, a brain tumor, and a host of other physical challenges, all the while keeping him safe at home, getting him to church every Sunday, to Bible study on Wednesday, and on airplanes for wherever the family reunion happens to be that year. And I tell you, when I think of art and Dorothy, I know Dorothy is the real missionary. She never once stopped to think about whether or not she really wanted to do this. She dropped her nets and she ran. What compels us to follow? Do you remember what Jesus said right before he invited them? He announces the arrival of the kingdom of God. He says, I bring good news for the kingdom has come near. Jesus comes not demanding, but inviting. Jesus comes not asking them to save the world, but to receive the saving love of God. He was not asking them to be heroes so that one day in the long off future, they could meet God. He was declaring that God was already among them and could use them on the team now. God's love was unfolding in their midst and they didn't want to miss it. When Jesus announces that God has come in the here and the now, that God's holy realm is unfolding on the earth in the present tense, fishing loses its luster. Suddenly, they are no longer looking back to the life that they once led, but forward into the life they have always wanted. Barbara Brown Taylor says, we give those disciples too much credit sometimes, for all they really did was to allow themselves to fall in love, to be swept away by a current of love that was so much more powerful than any love or any power they had ever known before. The God who invited them also empowered them to taste that love and that joy that is a whole new life. A few weeks ago, Joe Walker and I officiated at the funeral of a 23-year-old man in our congregation named Tyler Moffat. We were blessed that day because we also had some other speakers from his life come and speak from the pulpit, one of whom was Tyler's high school football coach. He talked about Tyler on the field and at practice, blocking and tackling and learning tough lessons as he worked hard. And then this broad-shouldered coach said right here in this pulpit, you know, every day in the locker room, I said to the team, what is my job? And they answered, to love us. And I said, and boys, what is your job? And they said, to love one another. That, my friends, is the kingdom of God. If you're a football coach or a fisherman, a cocktail waitress, 
or a stay-at-home mom, a stockbroker or a physician, an advertising account manager or a car dealer. Your job is to love. That is the kingdom that Jesus announced. He told them that God was already here in the real world loving them. And immediately they followed. For once you sense the power of God's love, there is no other way to stop your heart from responding immediately.